Let's open our Bibles, as Gino said, to Ezekiel chapter 1. We're going to look at the opening three verses tonight to kind of set our stage for our studies through Ezekiel. Study we're calling 30-something. You'll see why in a little bit. Ezekiel chapter 1. Each of us has looked forward to a milestone birthday that would bring us to the age at which we could pursue some desire or maybe a career. Driving age is always a big one uh, when you're a kid. Uh, of course, you're not looking so forward to it when you're a parent, uh, but uh, you know, it's kind of, a, uh, kind of a different perspective. But when you're, when you're a young person, you can't wait to get your permit and start motoring around. A lot of young people in our area look forward to turning age 17 so that with parental consent they can enlist in the military, or 18 if they can't get their parents to cooperate. Look at verse 1 of Ezekiel. Now it came to pass in the 30th year. It's probably a reference to Ezekiel turning 30. All his life, Ezekiel was looking forward to turning 30. He was born into the tribe in Israel that served as its priests. You served as a priest between the ages of 30 and 50. You can read all about it in Numbers chapter 4. His entire life up until age 30 would be dominated by preparation for the priesthood under normal circumstances. Ezekiel, however, would never serve in the temple as a priest. Verse 1 goes on, it says, Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kibar. On his 30th birthday, he found himself dwelling in a settlement called Tel Abib on the banks of the river Kibar in Babylon. The Israelites had been conquered by the Babylonian Empire. His dreams of being a priest and serving in his course at the temple at Jerusalem were pretty well dashed. If he understood the words of Jeremiah the way Daniel did, then he knew that the Babylonian captivity would last 70 years. Even if he saw the temple again, he would be past the maximum age and he would not be able to serve. He'd never serve as a priest. God called him instead to be a prophet and quite a remarkable one at that. There in Babylon, in captivity, Ezekiel would serve God as his prophet for some 20 plus years. I read that and I thought, welcome to servanthood. Say hello to God's will for your life. Uh, God has his plans and they're not always ours. Seriously, though, while it's great to dream and to plan, everything must be subordinated to the understanding. Nevertheless, not my will, but God's will be done. That's a sweet ringtone. Had Ezekiel been born a few years earlier, he would have enjoyed life serving as a priest during a time of great revival. King Josiah was Judah's godly king from about 641 B.C. until 610 B.C. In the 18th year of his rule, Josiah began to encourage the exclusive worship of Jehovah. He outlawed all other forms of worship. Josiah destroyed the living quarters for male prostitutes, that's how bad it had gotten, which were in the temple, and also destroyed foreign pagan objects related to the worship of Baal, Asherah, and it says all the hosts of the heavens. 
Josiah had the living pagan priests executed. He had the bones of dead pagan priests exhumed from their graves and burned on their altars. He destroyed the altars and the images of pagan deities. Josiah wasn't messing around. When you talk about revival, he was all over it. Josiah ordered the high priest Hilkiah to use the tax monies which had been collected over the years to repair the neglect and the damage suffered by the temple during the reigns of the previous kings Ammon and Manasseh. While they were cleaning in the temple, Hilkiah discovered the book of the law. Some speculate it may have been the original Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible penned by Moses himself. Hilkiah brought this scroll to Josiah's attention. The king had it read aloud to a crowd in Jerusalem. He was praised for his piety by the prophetess Huldah, who made the prophecy that all involved would die without having to see God's judgment on Judah for the sins they had committed in prior generations. Josiah reinstituted the Passover celebration and he returned the Ark of the Covenant to the temple, according to 2 Chronicles 35. By the way, that's the last recorded mention of the Ark in Scripture. What a glorious time it would have been to be getting ready to enter your service as a priest. But before his 30th birthday, things would change rather dramatically for Ezekiel. Josiah was killed in 610 B.C. in a battle at Megiddo when he went up against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Josiah's middle son, Jehoahaz, he reigned over Judah for the next three months after his dad died. He was taken captive by Necho, who then installed Josiah's eldest son, Jehoiakim, as ruler of Judah. Now enter Babylon as a world power. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon defeated Pharaoh Necho. He came to Jerusalem around 605 B.C. He left Jehoiakim in charge, but he took away many of the ruling class in Judah, including Daniel and his three friends. Eleven years later, Jehoiakim foolishly rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim died before the siege of Babylon, and his son Jehoiachin ruled in his place. In this second siege, Nebuchadnezzar took away 10,000 more captives, including Ezekiel. Zedekiah would be next to set up uh, to rule Judah as a tributary to Babylon. Against good and godly advice from Jeremiah, Zedekiah allied himself with Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar came a third and final time. He laid siege and ruined Jerusalem and its temple. It was 586 B.C., just 23 years after Josiah's death. Ezekiel missed the opportunity to priest under Josiah by just a few years. Instead of riding the wave of revival in Jerusalem, he was exiled by the shores of a Babylonian canal. I, I want to paint a picture for you of the reality of Ezekiel's life before he begins to receive the, this word from the Lord. Uh, I mean, some of you, I mean, you've, you've probably had dreams dashed. Maybe, maybe you're living through a time, maybe your whole life is a dashed dream. You thought you were going to be something when you grew up. And, and then life got in the way, as it were. And, and you, you know, you keep thinking about what might have been, what could have been. 
Uh, I know a lot of families still break up today because people have some crazy dream that they want to get back to instead of just going with God's plan. Ezekiel, from a, from a spiritual point of view, he had missed this, the great revival under Josiah by just a few years and found himself in a, born into the priestly family a privileged individual, never able to serve as a priest, never able to go into the temple, never able to serve in his course, in a sense, having no real purpose anymore in his life. I mean, if you're a priest and there's no temple and you're an exiled person, uh, it's kind of difficult, really. And so this is the state we find him in, in verse 1. But God had a calling for his priest. Again, it says, now he came to pass in the 30th year in the fourth month on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kibar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now we read of the heavens being opened four times in the New Testament. In Matthew 3.16, the heavens open at the baptism of Jesus as the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. In John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus tells Nathanael, that he will see the heavens open as angels ascend and descend to minister to the Lord. Then in the Revelation, in chapter 4, verse 1, the heavens open to receive John into heaven to see the visions of the future. And then in Revelation 19, 11, the heavens open as Jesus returns to earth in his second coming at the end of the age. And so when Ezekiel says, I saw the heavens open, it's not just a situation where he says, you know, this is how I'm going to introduce the fact that I received a prophecy. Uh, He's not exaggerating, as it were. This is a a phenomenal, amazing event where in, in some sense that we don't fully understand, the heavens were opened to him so that he could see amazing visions. The revelations Ezekiel received were actually many in form, and some are the most unique in all the Word of God. I'm anxious to get to the rest of chapter 1, because uh, most of you know this already, but uh, the, the modern theories about Ezekiel are so fantastic. They're so much more fantastic than the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, when you read through chapter 1, the latest theory is that he saw aliens visiting from another world. Because his description, they say, sounds like spacecraft and alien visitors. And, and then they try and do all this chariots of the God stuff, you know, Eric Van Donneken and all that. We'll talk about that. It's easier, I guess, for people to believe that aliens came here from uh, another galaxy and gave us the Bible than that there is a loving, compassionate God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us and rise from the dead. They'd rather believe in aliens than angels as if that's a step in a more scientific direction. And so it's, it's very interesting. Ezekiel comes into play in a lot of talk here in the end times by mystics and New Agers and things like that. But he gets some fantastic visions. He's also called upon to perform about ten symbolic, what I would call skits, only they're very serious. They're dramas. They're, he, he, he has to act out certain prophecies about ten different times. Uh, three of them we'll see in chapter 4. I just want to tell you what they are to give you a feel for it. There in chapter 4, he's going to build a model of Jerusalem under siege. Then he lies on his left side for 390 days, and then his right side for additional 40 days. And so you'd 
cruise by Ezekiel's house in Tel Aviv and he'd be out there by his model laying on his side playing with his model. It was a picture, of course, of the siege that was going to come against Jerusalem, the third and final siege. And during that same time, he ends up cooking rations using his own excrement because that's the fuel that the the exiles are going to have to use when they're uh, when they were being sieged, and and so it's it's uh, pretty heavy duty skits, you know. So when I say skits, it's not lighthearted stuff. Prophecies to symbolize God's judgment on the nation of Judah. By far the most dramatic symbol is the one we'll encounter in chapter 24. I want to read these verses to you because they're just so powerful. Ezekiel 24, beginning in verse 15, says, "Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold." I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head. Put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips. Do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things signify to us that you behave so? And then I answered them, the word of the Lord came to me saying, speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. You shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you. According to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. Wow. Do you understand what I just said? On the very day, biblical historians say that Nebuchadnezzar began his final destructive siege of Jerusalem... That was the day that Ezekiel's wife died. And he so reacted as a symbol of what God was doing. This is a heavy dude. This is, he's the real deal when it comes to prophets. There's no greatness for God in God's service without suffering and without sacrifice. Suffering is in the hands of God. It will find you. You don't need to go looking for it. And so if you're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, I want to serve God. What can I do to suffer? It'll find you. Don't worry about it. It's on its way if it hasn't caught up to you already. Sacrifice, however, that's more in your hands. You are called upon to offer yourself, what? A living sacrifice. Depth and power in serving the Lord come from a life of real sacrifice as God also takes you through suffering. And so leave the suffering to God. He will give you grace that is sufficient for it. But think about offering your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which Paul the Apostle says in Romans is the only reasonable thing for a Christian to do. Then in verse 2, on the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. Now, I'll be the first to admit I get lost in the dates. Ezekiel had been taken into captivity with King Jehoiachin in March of 597 B.C. As the book opens here, Ezekiel is already in captivity, having been carried off in the second siege. 
He prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem six or seven years before it happened. And so the first and second sieges had taken place. Daniel was taken in the first, Ezekiel in the second, but Jerusalem still stood. Uh, and it was in the next few years, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar would come and destroy Jerusalem. So that's the time period. In fact, the book can be outlined in this very simple format. Chapters 1 through 24 contain prophecies after the first and second sieges, but before the third siege and the final destruction. Chapters 25 through 32 contain prophecies relating to the fall of Jerusalem itself. And then chapter 33 all the way through chapter 48 contain prophecies after the fall of Jerusalem, including its future restoration in the end times. You could also further divide the book into a fourth part because in chapters 25 through 32, Ezekiel addresses seven Gentile nations and God's dealings with them as well as what he's doing with Israel. So here in the early part of the book, Ezekiel wrote to show the exiles they needed to prepare for a lengthy stay in Babylon. They wanted to think that they were only going to be in Babylon for a very short period of time and then God was going to act on their behalf even though they were uh, deeply in sin and even though they had a lot to account for. uh, They thought, no, God... You know, God put his glory in the temple. He won't allow us to be gone very long. And just like Jeremiah ministering back in Jerusalem, Ezekiel there in Babylon was saying, guys, this is a long, long captivity. Daniel would figure out from reading Jeremiah's prophecy that it was going to be a 70 year captivity. Uh, But, you know, Ezekiel's message to them was settle in. We're not going back. Most of you will never see Jerusalem again. But afterwards, after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., when those words came to pass, then he begins to comfort them with the sure hope that the Jews, as a people, would not be forgotten by God, that they would be regathered to Jerusalem, and that God would perform all of the things that he had promised their fathers. Uh, And the scope of the prophecies go through our own day uh, to the end times and beyond. Here are a few other fascinating facts about Ezekiel while we're talking about dates and times. Ezekiel is one of only two people in the Bible who are commanded by God to eat a scroll. The other, of course, was John. The book of Ezekiel contains more specific dates than any other Old Testament prophetic book. Nothing else is recorded about Ezekiel in the Word of God except what we read in his book. Ezekiel is one of two Old Testament books that describe the fall of Lucifer, Satan. The other is Isaiah. In the book, there are at least 25 references to the Holy Spirit, and at least nine chapters describe the future glory of Israel during the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Jeremiah had been prophesying for about 35 years to this point. Daniel was just beginning his amazing ministry, but was at the heart of the action in the very courts of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Ezekiel was stuck out along the river Kibar, a sort of large canal that was connected to the river Euphrates in a 
Jewish settlement for exiles. He was comfortable, but he was obscure. He was out in the sticks. He was a nobody, a wannabe priest who would never serve in the temple. He was you and I, stuck in central California, out in the sticks. You ever feel that way? I mean, I love it here, don't get me wrong. I think it's a fantastic place to raise grandchildren. And um, happy to do it. But from him we can learn to forget our wannabes or our could-have-beens and simply receive God's Word. I know people who have spent their entire Christian walk thinking of what could have been or what they want to be, what they're going to do for the Lord one day. And in the meantime, they're just always in kind of a holding pattern, always waiting. Uh, some of them are almost belligerent. They're, they're only going to do what they're going to do their way when they want to, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, Jacob was sharing the other night at a meeting and he said there's uh, two kinds of people. There's them that are sent and them that just went. And uh, the ministry has a lot of people who uh, are sent. You wait on the Lord. You seek the Lord in prayer. You uh, get the direction of leadership, things like that. And then there's some people who just went. They said, no, nah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to find a place to do it. I'm going to go there and do it. And, and so, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of could be, I could be, or I could want to be, or this is what I'm going to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, there was Ezekiel just waiting on the Lord. We don't know his mental state. I'm not, I'm not really suggesting he was depressed or bummed out or anything. I mean, that's a, a stretch. I'm just telling you his condition. He, he was never going to be a priest. He was never going to serve in the temple. I don't know his reaction. Maybe he got up all excited about that and said, Lord, you know, I'll never be in the priesthood like you said. I'll never. So I, maybe you've got something better for me. Maybe he was a glass half full kind of a guy. Most of the time you think of him as a glass half empty kind of a guy, you know, because that, that's the way we think. And, and, and you know, if, if he didn't have disappointment, at least we can understand disappointment and discouragement. But we can learn from him. The word still comes to us as we read it and as we're taught it. It may not seem as dramatic, but it is far more complete. It's always a mind blower to me to think how much more complete the revelation of God is to us than it was to any of these prophets who were receiving the word of God. You think, wow, this is fantastic. Ezekiel saw the heavens opened and had these amazing visions that Peter tells us in his New Testament epistles, the prophets didn't understand. They desired to look into these things, to know them in the fullness that we know them, because we can look back on them with the full knowledge of what God has revealed in His Word. We see them after the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, after the completion of the New Testament, with all the fulfillment of those things in Jesus Christ. These Old Testament guys didn't have as complete an understanding as we do of their own prophecies. And so the word of the Lord still comes to us as we read it and hear it taught. Is the hand of the Lord upon us here by the King's River? Maybe we could put ourselves in here. By the King's River. On the, you know, what's the date today? 28th, 29th? Nobody knows. Don't make me get my phone out. I'll be on Facebook and we'll be here all night. The hand of the Lord here by the King's River. Well, he certainly indwells us. 
Jesus further promised to send His Holy Spirit upon us, so I'd have to say, yes, the hand of the Lord is upon us. Let's hasten the Lord's coming. Let's serve Him according to His calling and not according to our own criteria. Let's sacrifice, really sacrifice. Let's trust Him to give us grace through all of our suffering. Amen?